Welcome to Transform, a podcast highlighting the people and ideas shaping the future of senior living. I'm Tim Mullaney with Senior Housing News. In this episode, we're exploring the latest trends in dining in interviews with Marjan Kadrek, Vice President of Dining Services with Brookdale Senior Living, and Carrie Chisano, Executive Director, Presbyterian Senior Care Network, Dementia Care Center of Excellence. Before we get to those interviews, I'd like to thank our podcast sponsor today, Point Click Care. They know financial health is integral to your success and want to help you reach your goals. Connect with Point Click Care at Argentum, April 15th to 17th, to learn how they can help you achieve financial success. Dining is a crucial part of senior living operations, and providers are increasingly seeking to differentiate themselves from the competition with exceptional culinary offerings. From fresher ingredients to more sophisticated dishes, to more varied dining venues and experiences, senior living is constantly raising the bar, even in the face of staffing challenges, occupancy pressures, and the need to carefully manage budgets and watch the bottom line. In the first interview for this episode, you're going to hear how Brookdale, the nation's largest senior living provider, is navigating this new era of dining at scale and across multiple levels of care. So Marjan, thanks for joining us for the podcast today. Thanks for inviting me. Really looking forward to it. So to start out with, would love it if you could just briefly describe your background and how you came to the position you currently hold with Brookdale. Sure. So uh, I started my career with a contract management company, working mostly in hospitals and senior housing. And in 1997, I joined Brookdale as a director of dining services at one of the communities in uh, the Chicago suburbs. The time when I joined Brookdale, we had eight communities. So with my tenure with them, it's obviously been a lot of growth and lots of opportunity, and I've been able to kind of grow with the company over the years to uh, my current position as uh, Vice President of Dining Services. Great. That's an amazing tenure. So you mentioned the scale that Brookdale's achieved <laughs> in the time since you joined them. Now, I think it's you know a thousand plus communities. So I guess before we sort of dive into some of the meaty topics on our menu today. I didn't mean to make all those puns, but we'll go with it. It'd be helpful just to hear a little bit about what Brookdale's approach to dining is operationally given its scale. I'm thinking about, does it work with sort of third-party dining services companies like Morrison or Sodexo? Is it more run totally in-house? Can you just sort of describe what Brookdale's dining operations, how they function, just to give us a frame of reference for where you're sort of coming from? Yeah, sure. You know, and, and it's changed over the years, obviously. And you know, I think one of the main pieces when I joined Brookdale uh, in '97, you know, assisted living wasn't even regulated. So, I mean, there's been such a change in the in the industry. But, you know, Brookdale is uh, 100% self-op operated. Don't use any contract management companies. You know, over the years we've merged with several companies. So, I think to kind of give you a you know, overarching is we're a hospitality company. We're obviously uh, highly focused in assisted living and then, you know, have that skilled component. So we really kind of have a, I don't want to say a three-prong approach, but, you know, you have to kind of balance all those depending on the product type and the individual community. So, you know, we do pride ourselves, you know, uh, fresh cooking. We have our own menu programs, our own recipes you know, that uh, we've grown over the years, which is, you know, even through submissions of, you know, individual communities, as well as uh, residents submitting recipes. 
Great. And given that it is all in-house and it's such a big company, I assume that the, it's sort of broken up into people at the corporate level with sort of a national purview and then sort of regional operations that oversee kind of individual communities. And then there are the executive chefs or whatever the title is at the community level. Is that kind of how it breaks down just in terms of the org chart? Yes. And it you know it depends on the size of the, the individual communities, I would say, are Larger communities have, you know, your in our CCRCs have more of the traditional chef positions, you know, until kind of a restaurant, and then, you know, some of our other communities, you have uh, what's what we call a dining services coordinator, which oversees the dining operations. And then, in your position, what are your sort of primary responsibilities? What's your kind of day to day look like? Yeah, so the, you know, the corporate function, what we really try to do is provide some of the best uh, tools and programs available for, for the communities. So what we want to be able to do is, you know, whether it's, you know, like I mentioned, our menu program, you know, have a program that allows for some consistency in some of our standards, but still then gives the communities the ability to do the customization so they can, you know, change their menus at the at the community level. You know, they're able to choose what uh, is being offered. So we try to act as a support. You know, we have a saying, if you're not serving a resident, you should serve someone who is. So, you know, we're really trying to serve those individuals that are taking care of our residents each and every day. Got it. So now I just want to go through and kind of rapid fire, we'll, we'll jump a little bit all over the place, but I want to get your take on some of the maybe trends that are emerging in dining and some of the challenges that I think a lot of operators are facing in dining, as well as some opportunities. So to start, maybe we can talk about dining formats and menu options. I think in our reporting, we've seen senior living communities doing a lot on the dining side, whether it's bringing in sort of a fast casual restaurant style option into communities, wine bars and bistros and grab and go counters seem to be kind of commonplace now. On the menu side, we're seeing some really interesting things, whether it's, you know, kind of celebrity chefs coming in doing really innovative things or gluten-free menus, vegan menus. So I guess I'm just wondering what some of the new or trending dining formats or menu offerings are that you're excited about or interested in, and if you are seeing anything out there in the sort of restaurant and dining world at large that is inspiring you. Yeah, so, you know, definitely the wine bars, bistros, you know, different dining venues, I think, you know, they're becoming more and more commonplace with a lot of providers. You know, we probably about five to six years ago started with a a bistro concept, and that's been really, uh, really successful for us. But what I think you're seeing a little bit more of now from a trend standpoint is not even just uh, building out uh, some of those spaces, but, you know, in the main dining rooms, uh, having the ability to you know, modify the space or, you know, take a large dining room and break it down into some smaller dining venues when you to. So, you know, whether that's a use of like air walls or like glass partitions, so you can still have that large dining room when you, you know, want to do some of the bigger functions, but then, you know, break those uh, rooms down into smaller areas and really offer some different dining concepts. So, you know, you can have one of the rooms is a bit more of a casual pub type feel menu. You can have one that can be a little bit more formal. 
you know, and you can do that by there again, just, you know, partitioning it down, you know, switching out your linens, tablecloths, and even having your service staff wear some different uniforms. From a kind of inspiring standpoint, I think, you know, we've heard, you mentioned vegan and gluten, and I think once again, most companies are, you know, offering those in one way, shape, or form or another. But I think that uh, what you're seeing become a little bit more, or that's starting to creep into the senior housing venue, is kind of the, you know, slow food movement. And that kind of encompasses everything from, you know, organic, sustainable, you know, purchasing local, you know, you're even seeing more and more of even broadline vendors uh, realize that that is uh, a demand for their customers and, you know, are touting those and having products available for purchase. That's interesting. It, it, does that move toward more locally sourced kind of organic ingredients create just operationally for a, a company like Brookdale that I imagine has a lot of efficiencies of scale how do you sort of approach that wanting each community to maybe be able to source its ingredients more locally? Is that kind of, you know, it just is how the budget works out that each community kind of has, you know, X amount of dollars and they go out and, and can spend that as they see fit given what's available in their markets? Yeah, you know, to a certain extent. I mean, what I would say is how we approach it is, you know, you obviously have national contracts and, you know, you try to contract a lot of your like staple items and I call them kind of non-emotional items. So, you know, your center of the plate, proteins, you know, items like juice, etc. You know, those are items where you've got a lot of economy of scale. But what we do at Brookdale is that we have a certain portion of our individual community's food budgets that we encourage them to purchase locally and outside of even our national vendor program. And in some instances, that is, you know, to help supplement, you know, you may be only getting one or two deliveries a week with a broadline vendor, but you want to have fresh uh, seafood on your menu. So we want communities to be able to purchase that fresh seafood to kind of supplement of having to kind of have a one-stop shop. So I think that's where you have that ability to customize, to, you know, find that local vendor that has, you know, some of these other items that they can really customize to the individual communities. You used a phrase in there that I thought was interesting about how there's maybe emotion tied to some items on the plate more than others, is that I imagine if you're, for instance, from a community on the sea, maybe you're you you have emotion around seeing that fresh seafood is that is that what you meant yeah absolutely and i and i think it's you know chicken is chicken i mean you can cook it you know a thousand different ways but there are certain regional you know regional items that communities are going to be looking for and so you know that's where we want to be able to have them give that ability so as an example you know you're down in florida you know, halibut, as an example, is something that you're going to want to, you know, see on the menu. It's something that's obviously very local that they want to be able to see put on the menu. In the Midwest, probably not as big of a deal. So, you know, giving the communities that ability to customize customize their menus and manage it, because, you know, I think you mentioned about, like, um, cost as an example. Well, you know, if there again, if I'm purchasing something, you know, down in Florida that hails from that area, you know, if I buy it locally, it's going to actually be, uh, or sometimes can be more cost effective than if I am shipping it across the country and trying to serve it in Seattle, Washington, on the other hand. So 
you can still get that quality, you can still get that customization, provide the residents what they're looking for, and you're not really going to break the bank. Right. So uh, to shift to our next topic, not to give you whiplash, but it's I want to talk about staff retention and just the sort of labor challenges surrounding dining, because we've heard that obviously labor is a big challenge across senior living in general. But we have heard specifically that the dining room and the kitchen can be some of the hardest places in a community to retain staff. So wondering if you can speak to the challenges in hiring and retaining wait staff and line cooks, et cetera, and any thoughts you have on best practices, any initiatives that Brookdale is doing to sort of engage and motivate the dining staff? Yeah. So, you know, I think it's it's always been a challenging area. And, you know, I I think if you look at like some of the latest uh, Bureau of Labor statistics, like the annual turnover rate in the hospitality industry, you know, it's like 70 percent. So, uh, you know, we experience, you know, some of those similar percentages. And once again, we're still vying for those same associates. And, you know, national unemployment rate, I think, is at 4 percent right now. So there's a, a smaller pool to kind of go around. But, you know, one of our strategic tactics for 2019, not just providing services, but as a company is to, you know, attract, engage, develop, and retain the best associates. You know, Brookdale's striving to be not only the provider of choice for residents or family members, but we want to be the employer of choice. What I think our industry has to offer, and, you know, specifically Brookdale with its size and scale, is there's lots of opportunities. You know, if you work at a restaurant, well, you can kind of work your way up through you know, if you're a cook, you can work your your way up and, you know, I don't know if you work your way up to be a chef, but, you know, it could be a sous chef, etc. With our industry, you know, we see, a, a, well, specifically Brookdale, we have a lot of tenured associates. They may start out in the dining room. It's an, you know, entry-level position, but they really have an opportunity to grow, whether it's resident programs, whether it's sales. We, you know, we've even had folks that have started with us in dining and are now, you know, working as executive directors at communities. So it's something we obviously promote within, but, you know, there's been uh, uh, several social media articles that have been done that we try to promote that even without. So, you know, showing people that you can come, you know, get in at the bottom floor of Brookdale, but you can really make a career out of it. Got it. So the next topic is, Specifically, I want to talk about dining in memory care. This is something that we here at Senior Housing News did a deep dive report on recently, specifically the rise of kind of evidence-based memory care dining, the idea being that there's this increasing body of research about how to offer better nutrition for memory care. So I'm curious if Brookdale's approach to dining in memory care has evolved in recent years and what you're currently focused on in terms of dining in memory care specifically. Sure. You know, and as I mentioned before, like when I started with the company, you know, assisted living wasn't even regulated. I don't even know if, you know, memory care was a term that was used back then. (laughs) It changed so much. And I do think we've got a great dementia care team here at Brookdale that we partner with, you know, on everything from what's on our menus to, you know, service as well as tableware standards. So, you know, many of the things that are in that study, you know, we've been doing as a company for quite some time. 
you know, one area I think that we've uh, had a focus on over the last year and are looking to continue to, into this year is really taking a look at some of our texture modified foods. And we have a program that we've been presenting in select markets where we do hands-on training with our associates that we call Puree with Love. And it really takes a look at those texture modified foods. And, you know, obviously it need to make sure that they're prepared correctly, the consistency is correct, but most importantly, you know, how they are presented. You know, I think oftentimes you can kind of get away from how much we do eat with our eyes. And if you think about that kind of first impression from a resident, you know, it's when that plate is presented in front of them. So, you know, regardless of what it's going to taste like, the temperature is going to be like, if it doesn't look appetizing or just, you know, makes you want to dive into it, you know, you've kind of lost, uh, lost the battle. So it's, it's something we've really been focusing on, uh, like I said, last year and are going to continue into this year. Great. Yeah. I've seen some photos. It's really amazing what is possible with pureed food and how it can look so similar to just a you know regular piece of chicken or meatloaf or what have you. Yeah, we actually did a, so we took some photos from one of our sessions and we presented it to our executive team and we asked them, can you pick out which one is the puree versus the non-puree and I'll tell you some of them did not, couldn't pick the, pick them out. So, uh, <laughs> incredible. <clears throat> That's great. Jumping on to the, the next topic, I want to talk about sort of on the design side, what's going on in the kitchens and dining rooms. I think you already touched on this earlier when you talked about trend toward dividing up spaces a little bit into smaller spaces that can serve different kinds of food or, or offer kind of different experiences for the resident. So it seems like that's a trend. Maybe if you can confirm that that is one and if you can speak broadly about if Brookdale is renovating these spaces, how are they being upgraded or what do you see as the future of, of the kitchen and the dining room? Yeah. So, you know, I mean, I think that the front of the house uh, or dining rooms, you know, typically get a lot of the attention and rightfully so they're the, you know, kind of first impression that you get. So, you know, they get the, you know, bright paint, the new chairs, the tables, etc. <clears throat> but I do think that there there's from a back of the house standpoint, there's some, you know, technology or uh, pieces of equipment that um, uh, you're seeing a, a bit more in, in our kitchens and, you know, Combi ovens have been around for a long time and they've gotten, you know, better. And I think they're almost the standard piece of equipment in most, most kitchens. But one that we are seeing more and more that we're utilizing, and this goes to kind of speak to some of those staffing challenges, you know, not that you have to do more with less, but you have to do more with the same. So how, how can you achieve that? And, you know, these uh, rapid cook ovens are just, you know, phenomenal. We've once again put those in, you know, some of our bistro concepts or alternate dining areas where, you know, you can offer a, a pretty in-depth menu and you don't need that culinary level um, to pull those off because, you know, they're really push button. You can pre-program them. So, you know, you put an item in, you press the button and a minute and a half later, you know, you've got a fresh hot product. We've also seen, you know, point of sale system, you know, from a technology standpoint to help expedite service as uh, equipment or hardware's gotten cheaper. 
and software has become more flexible. It's definitely a great solution, especially in communities where you want to offer that multi-dining venue. So uh, it's an easy way to, you know, track resident meals, whether they're having, you know, panini in the bistro, they decide to go have a glass of wine in the wine bar, they want to have a full service meal in the dining room, gives them a lot of flexibility with their meal programs to, to dine where they want. Also, it gives you that opportunity as, you know, family members and guests come in and they may not want to charge that additional guest meal off to their room, you know, the ability to accept the credit cards. But it also really expedites service and helps uh, speed things up a bit. Right. So I know we've also already sort of talked about dining budgets and, and how the local communities are given some freedom to spend on on local items. Wondering if you can talk about dining budgets a little bit more, particularly whether you can share some cost-saving strategies or methods. And I know this is something we've already touched on already as well, but curious for a company with the size and scale of Brookdale, can you sort of talk about that tension that must be there between wanting to centralize operations, centralize dining, and then wanting to give freedom to the executive chef or, um, you know, the kind of people in charge of dining at the community level? Sure. Well, you know, at a community, you know, food and the dining labor expense in most cases is, you know, right next to like utility expenses. It's it's one of the biggest expenses at the community. So it is something that you have to kind of uh, manage and watch closely. So as for like, you know, cost, uh, cost-saving strategies, as I kind of mentioned earlier, you know, regardless of the size of the company that you are, you know, looking to contract, you know, as I mentioned, like maybe some of those non-emotional items, center-to-plate items, items like, you know, your juice, even items that are used across multiple departments like disposables and chemicals. You know, I think you can aggregate your spend, drive savings, and then drive those savings in those areas, which are a little bit less emotional, to be able to give a little bit more money or leeway with those other areas. One of the other things I think that, so if you you go through that process and you actually contract those, the big thing is to, you know, make sure to to the communities, hey, this is, you know, a contracted item. And even in some cases, you know, with that being under contract, you may have some rebates. So as they look at the cost of, you know, the juice, as an example, that might be not actually the ended cost once you figure in any rebates or incentives. So you got to make sure you communicate that out to them so that they are aware of that. So that once again, they're not, you know, they're using those dollars to buy that fresh halibut and not to, you know, they want to use a different juice company or a chemical program. Got it. I guess just lastly, I would really like to hear, it's sort of hitting me as we've been talking that you've been with Brooktail for so long and have been through such big changes in the company. I wonder if you can reflect a little bit about how your job has changed. And I guess I'm just wondering if you ever look around and think, <laughs> what, think about where you started versus where you are and if you're kind of amazed at that. You know, absolutely. And, and I'll, I'll share a little story with you. So when I first started with Brookdale and I was picking out my 401k, you know, companies, I looked at which ones had the uh, best five-year returns because I swore I would, wouldn't be with the company more than five years. I mean, historically, that was kind of the track. You know, I would be with a company for five years and then it was time to do something new and different. 
the, the big difference with Brookdale is that every, and it wasn't even four or five years, it seemed like it was every two to three years, it, it was almost like a new company, you know? So whether it was expanding in size, whether it was, you know, merging with another company, whether it was, you know, regulations have changed. So, you know, if you would have told me, you know, 21 years ago that you, you would be with Brookdale this long, I would have told you absolutely there's no way in the world. With that being said, you know, to your question, you know, things have changed quite a bit. And I think one thing you have to really look at is that you can't have a one size fits all solution. So as an example, we have, yes, we have a menu program that we use and we want all the communities to utilize that, but it's not one menu that's used at every single community. We have a program that allows for that customization and for the communities to really, you know, make it happen at the local level because, you know, I can't manage, you know, <laughs> this many communities remotely, nor would I ever want to. It, it has to happen at that local level. So we want to, once again, provide some of the best tools and programs to make our, you know, associates in the field, their job easier so they can do what is really important, which is spend time with the residents. Great. Well, this is really interesting conversation. I really thank you for taking the time to chat with me today, Marjan. Great. And thank you so much for the offer and appreciate the time. Before moving on to the second half of our show, we want to give another shout out to our podcast sponsor, Point Click Care. In our next segment, you'll hear an interview with Carrie Chisano, Executive Director of the Dementia Care Center of Excellence with Presbyterian Senior Care Network. That interview was conducted by my colleague, Jack Silverstein, who works on our research and reports here at Senior Housing News. And Jack's joined me now to set the stage for this interview. Jack, you this interview comes out of a recent report you did on the race for evidence-based memory care dining. Can you talk to us a little bit about why that was the topic that you wanted to report on? Absolutely. My colleague Liz Eckerer and I were talking about memory care dining as a report. And what we were saying and, and, and what she was also telling me through her years here at Aging Media and Senior Housing News was that when you talk to operators about their memory care dining programs. Everyone is doing great work. They're thinking person-centered. They're thinking about strategies to meet people where they are, to make sure that people who are wanderers are able to eat just as much as people who stay seated, that no one feels overwhelmed, etc. And they've got a lot of methods, but when you really ask them, where's the data for this? They say, honestly, I'm not sure. Like they might test their program on their own, but no one could say definitively that such and such an approach was the industry standard, that, that anyone would feel comfortable saying, this is what everyone should be doing. And the reason for that is that there are so many different kinds of dementias. They affect people so differently. It is very hard to conduct a proper study and come away with anything definitive around why people want to eat a certain food or not, or what's going to help them be healthy or not. And that led us to thinking and led me to thinking about this idea of the race to evidence, because as my generation ages into, you know, the, the generation X and even younger millennials, as we age into the generation that's going to be making the buy decisions for our parents, we are a very data-driven generation. We're data-driven consumers. You can see that around the data of how my generation is selecting schools for our children. 
And we are going to start asking people, hey, this is great. Where's the proof? It was a concept that came into the light as we did more and more interviews. And then I brought the idea back around to our subjects. And I said, is this a theory that you'd agree with? And they said, yes, absolutely. Everyone is going to have to nail down this evidence-based dining. And the first people to do it, it's going to be a real differentiator. So that was the editorial context that we put around all of these wonderful best practices and all these great strategies that so many operators have for their memory care dining. Right. Yeah, it's a great report and a really important topic, obviously, as memory care needs are just going to increase. So looking forward to hearing your interview with Carrie. Let's turn to that now. Hi, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to Transform. I am Jack Silverstein. I am an associate editor here at Senior Housing News, working on big research reports, trends reports on specific topics. I had the honor of writing our memory care dining report in late 2018. And one of the people I had the honor and privilege of speaking with for that report is with us here today. That is Carrie Chisano, Executive Director, Dementia Care Center of Excellence for Presbyterian Senior Care Network. Carrie, how are you today? I am doing great, Jack. Thank you so much for having me. Definitely. So this podcast overall is about dining in senior living, but you and I are going to talk specifically about dining programs and strategies in memory care, working with memory care residents, specific needs that they have and and the specific ways that senior living can address those needs. Before we dive in, why don't you tell listeners just a little bit about Presbyterian Senior Care Network and the Dementia Care Center of Excellence? Obviously, this is a specialty of yours. What can you tell listeners about this organization and then the, the Center of Excellence? Sure. Well, for Presbyterian Senior Care Network, being a Dementia Care Center of Excellence means delivering exceptional care, support, and service options for older adults and their caregivers who are impacted by Alzheimer's disease and related dementia. We're pretty confident in that we are experts with over 25 years experience. You see, Presbyterian Senior Care Network pretty much set the standard for dementia care by developing the Woodside model in 1991. Our model has a holistic approach that's been replicated more than 100 times, both nationally and internationally. Yeah, that's great. And it focuses a lot on person-centered dining, as I understand it. And and of course, the idea of being person-centered, it plays into a lot of what we're seeing in senior living right now. But that was something that you were onto, I mean, institutionally, you were onto pretty early. How did you zero in on this concept of being person-centered in your dining for memory care, specifically, as opposed to just independent living or assisted living? Well, right. That was actually uh, part of our Woodside standards that that we developed back in 1991, not knowing that it was person-centered care. But we we have over the years taking our what we call our Woodside model, our Woodside philosophy throughout our whole network. So Presbyterian Senior Care Network lives a person-centered culture every single day. Our team offers choice to everybody, whether they're living with dementia or they have no cognitive impairment at all. Specifically, our dining team takes on quite the task of meeting all of those special needs. It includes preparing the healthy diet options, and that includes creative finger foods and 
and including favorite recipes from years and years ago. What I get excited about, though, is how our dining team, like I said, includes our residents in, in the planning of it all. Yeah, that's that's crucial. And I think it's really important that that senior housing professionals think about the way that that person-centered concept can extend to all areas of a meal, especially for memory care, that it's about their the specific food that they're eating, but it's also about the atmosphere of the room. It's about their participation in the meal. Why is it so important to pay attention to these person-centered strategies in dining, in memory care, in a way that goes beyond independent living? Obviously, you know, I'll just use myself as an example. I want person-centered dining in the sense that I want to go to a restaurant that serves food that I like, and I want to sit at a, you know, at a table that I, you know, that's in a nice part of the restaurant. And everyone wants person-centered anything. I mean, it's it's the basis for like all of our technology today, streaming services, and you know, that's all person-centered. Why is person-centered that mentality and that strategy? so important in memory care, more so than just regular senior living? What is it specific to our residents, our senior community with dementia and with memory issues that requires that special person-centered attention? Well, well, of course, just because somebody is living with dementia doesn't mean that they can't continue to make their choices. We get that all the time. Well, Mm -hmm. they have a diagnosis of dementia. How do you engage them? And I have to tell you, our entire team does a fabulous job of engaging our residents. But specifically for our dining team, they include our residents in in certain resident councils and and food committees, the lifestyle engagement gatherings. And they have always been known to plan the big events like a sit-down Thanksgiving dinner or an Easter brunch, maybe a fancy-schmancy candlelight dinner. But my favorite things that have come from some of these gatherings are programs such as the Breakfast Club with the residents' favorite recipes. One of their favorites is special omelets to order, or maybe a special recipe that includes an overnight French toast. But the, the big deal about this is that the special events and the meals are planned by the residents, and they have their own family favorites from decades ago that have been added to this to this menu, you know, and and sometimes our residents will help prepare the meals, actually a lot of times, and and they can do that by peeling carrots and potatoes, maybe baking cookies and desserts, or, you know, we've got some folks that simply adding ingredients that have already been pre-measured to a bread maker. Maybe that's all that their attention span permits, but I got to tell you, there's nothing like walking into a room that has the aroma of fresh bread. It just smells amazing and gets people, it gets people intrigued to come in and have some of that bread. And I have to tell you that not everybody likes to do that. Not everybody likes to participate. And so if helping prepare a meal really isn't of interest, perhaps more of a Montessori or a life skills approach is more appropriate. For example, setting the table, clearing the table. Some of our folks will help make the coffee, clean up afterwards. My favorite is we have a little lady that loves just greeting others as they come into the dining room. Honestly, it all depends on their interest and their level of functioning. Definitely. And my understanding as well is that you're treating memories. 
that might not be triggered just through conversation, but can be triggered through other senses, through through the engagement of sense of smell, for example, or sense of touch that you're you're pulling. I don't know like technically how it works, but you're you're engaging the brain in such a way that it's pulling out even if they're not like explicit memories, they're emotional memories. That's at play as well in memory care dining, correct? Absolutely. It certainly is. A lot of times our dining service team, again, has really provided some cool aromas by adding items into the steam table wells. For example, they'll include cinnamon and spices during the holidays, or if it's summertime and we want to increase the appetite, they'll add citrus peels into those steam table wells in the summer. And and the aromas, they do get the senses going. And I know it improves my appetite, actually. It's pretty yeah. amazing what the aroma is, what a big deal it can be. It's, it's, in, it's incredible. And it, it works. I mean, I know from my experience, it, it works for me. You smell a food and suddenly you're transported to the first <laughs> time that you had it, or you think of suddenly you, you feel like a kid and you're in your grandmother's kitchen because she used to make, you know, whatever the food item is. And, and that, that's very real. It's a, it's a great way to reach these residents and give them a a full life experience through this experience of dining. Right. Absolutely. A lot of times our team will actually talk about the cinnamon. Oh, do you remember? And it'll just, the tables will will actually just start reminiscing about just those things, Jack. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about the specific ways that Presbyterian Senior Care Network builds a memory care dining program, ways in which they, that you, you build it that, that are different from how you build for independent living, for assisted living. And I know that there are a number of areas where the person-centered approach comes into play. You're making specific choices about menu items, how the food is prepared, ingredients, plating multiple options of food, mealtimes, accommodating residents who wander versus those who wish to be seated, different kinds of utensils, the weight of the utensils, the shape of the utensils, different place settings. There's a lot of conversation about the color of plates and the contrast of color between the food and the plate, between the plate and the tablecloth, between the tablecloth and the floor, the size of the room, the atmosphere in the room, the sounds in the room the feeling of a family. And I know that you take into account, you personally, but also you, Presbyterian Senior Care Network, take into account all of these different elements as you make choices of how you are going to feed these residents and give them a full, wonderful experience. So if you could take listeners through the most important elements here, the ones where if you're starting a new memory care dining program, you say, all right, you know what? These are all important. These are all going to impact my resident, but we're going to start here and build in this direction. What comes first? Well, I think we talked a little bit about what comes first in making sure that the residents have had the opportunity to be a part of the planning and, and the preparation. But once it comes down to meal meal time. Coming into the dining room, you know, when people think long-term care and dining, a lot of times 
they think of these big cafeteria style dining rooms or or these big extravagant dining areas where people come in with big fancy candles and all of that. We're not like that. We want it to be its home. So we want a smaller, more intimate room to make for a more successful meal time. There's fewer interruptions, less background noise, and, and more of a family feeling. It's so important not to have the televisions playing or the team members having a conversation that really don't include the residents. And if if we want to play some music, it, it should be appropriate to the individuals that are dining. And again, just to get people enticed and into the dining room, having those fresh aromas going are, are pretty important. You know, once we have folks in the dining room, being that they're living with dementia, we, we want to make sure that because their attention span is pretty short, we want to make sure that we have something to keep them engaged until it's ready for the meals. And when we do have the meals, we want to make sure that we offer that choice again. For example, so many people will ask us, how in the world do you still offer choice to those individuals living with dementia, especially at mealtime? And again, this was one of our most important Woodside standards that we developed when we opened in 1991. Whatever the meal choices are, we plate those choices and we show them to each person. So often what happens is if you ask a resident that's living with dementia, do you prefer chicken or lasagna? Most likely the individual is going to answer lasagna. However, if you flip that and say, do you prefer lasagna or chicken? The individual is going to answer chicken. So what I'm saying is, Typically, whatever's heard last within the past the last five words is typically what the choice is. So what we do is we plate the food and we offer we show chicken and we we show the chicken and then right beside it we show the lasagna and then we know we definitely know what their choice is. We can see their eyes getting bigger. They'll point to it and oh that's the one that I want. And again, if neither one of those plates that have been offered is something that the residents like, we go back to the kitchen and we get them what it is they do like. Knowing the person is so very important so that sometimes if they don't want either one of those, we go to the kitchen because the refrigerators in each of the households have been stocked with what it is the residents that live in that household really like. Of course. Have you found more success by just plating two and presenting two as opposed to three or four? I know that one question that people start to have is, well, you want to give choice, but you don't want to give too much choice because one thing, and correct me if I'm wrong, but one thing that can happen for people with dementia, depending on the level, is that you start inundating them with too much choice and they feel like they can't even make a decision You know, they become a little bit overwhelmed. So do you find that two is the magic number? Yes, exactly. We start with two, bottom line two. And then if if they don't like either one of those, we'll go into the kitchen and, you know, you have things like chicken salad or whatever it is they like. Chicken salad is, is a big seller here. So that's the first thing that comes to my mind. Okay. But then we'll do other things, plate two other things and show them. And But never more than two at a time. We see our residents eating better if they're eating what they like. Of course, of course. And I assume that, you know, people typically are going to fall into their choices. So for example, with me, I love cheeseburgers and I love steak, let's say. And, you know, if health and diet were were never a factor, if you put a steak in front of me and a cheeseburger in front of me, 
most of the time I would be happy choosing one of the two. Every now and again, maybe I'll ask for fried chicken or pizza. You know, it, again, diet were not an option. We could all just eat whatever we wanted. I assume that the better you know a resident, you're going to start hitting on the right two plates. Because obviously, it's ideal for from an operation standpoint, an efficiency standpoint, that you're not going back to the refrigerator every every day, every other day with the same resident if it can be avoided. So do you figure out, oh, this resident, we're going to be having the best results if we offer this resident this food and this food, even if it's not what everyone else is being offered? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Initially, when somebody first comes to us, it takes us a while to get to know them and get to know their preferences. But once we do, we find out we're not throwing food away anymore. So yes, that's exactly true. Right, right. How do you accommodate residents who need to wander versus those who need to be seated? And and sort of going along with that, you're talking about both the meal times in terms of when you're serving a meal and the meal times in terms of how long a meal is budgeted for time-wise for a resident. How do you learn how to make those choices for each resident? Well, we all have set meal times across all of our communities. But that being said, our residents, you know, being the person-centered culture, they have natural awakenings. They can wake up whenever they want as well as retire whenever they want. And this could mean they're getting up at 4 a.m. or noon. So if the meal is missed, per se, there are there are things that are able to be prepared right there, right there in the kitchen. And, and like I said earlier, the refrigerators are stocked with favorite items of the residents that are living in that household. So the par levels are very different from house to house. Many of our residents, they do eat at the particular meal times. There's a handful that have, that have their own clock and they prefer sitting in the dining room that they know. And a lot of times, usually at the same table in the same seat. That's for many of our residents. But we do have those folks that have built relationships with other residents and other households or or maybe within our adult day program, and they choose to have their meal with their friends or families visiting. They'll they'll go to a quieter dining room, a quieter area, maybe the parlor, the puzzle room, and they'll have their meals there. But they're with the people that they choose to be with. It's all in where they want to be. After all, it's their home. Now, if an individual doesn't want to sit at all, uh, we find ways for them to eat the meal when they're up and about. And this is uh, where the team really needs to get creative. We have found that pretty much anything can become a finger food. If you can't cut it in a way that it can be held or that they can just kind of grab and go, we have also found that just about anything can go onto a slice of bread and fold it in half. And now, now it's a finger food. And that includes spaghetti. We do it all the time. One of the other creative ways some of our team members have found is ice cream cones. You can actually hold an entire meal in an ice cream cone. You put a layer of meat, maybe a layer of mashed potatoes, top it off with a Brussels sprout or two, and they can walk around and eat it just as if you'd be eating an ice cream cone. The goal is to have them eat their meals before it becomes pureed. We don't want it to have it pureed if we don't need to puree it. We want them to have the whole foods. Now, that's interesting. That's interesting you say that because puree for a long time was was a very popular best it was considered a best practice that's not something you subscribe by well we we want to try the food first I if see. there's a reason from 
from the speech therapist that tells us they're pocketing, we're afraid they're going to aspirate, then we don't, then we go the route of pureed food. But if they're able and they prefer, I mean, wouldn't you rather have your cheeseburger or your steak, Jack, the way that it is? Or would you like it all ground up and kind of looking like soup? Nope. Give me that cheeseburger. Give me that steak. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. And talking about our our rehab team, our speech therapists, our occupational therapists, they're extremely involved with us. They do screenings initially, as soon as the individuals move in with us, as well as any time that there's a significant change or need. Um, And that's where we incorporate some of the adaptive equipment that that you mentioned earlier. If some of our residents have some tremors, maybe the weighted silverware will help. Maybe if there's been some weakness, they've angled the silverware if they can't get it up. You know, having the angled silverware helps. They put the lips on the side of the plates. It helps with with scooping. It's really important for us to help our residents maintain their independence. Right. And when we spoke for our memory care dining report, you noted that Presbyterian Senior Care Network uses 10 different utensils to meet different needs. We focused on the foam wrapped utensil, which is for typically for people with arthritic hands or people with a decreased range of motion that limits the ease of the grip that would be on a normal fork or knife or spoon. We highlighted the curved utensils with the grips, which is for, as you said, people with decreased range of motion of their wrists and elbows. And we focused on the weighted utensils. Again, as you said, for individuals with tremors, it helps them stabilize people with decreased gross uh, motor coordination in their arms. These are just three of the 10 examples for people who want to improve their memory care dining program. What do they have to do in order to reach a point where they can say, okay, James should have the foam wrapped utensil. Betty should have the curved utensil with the grips. What, What do they need to do from an operation standpoint, from an evaluation standpoint, to reach that point where they know this is the utensil for this resident. Right. One of the things that the team just does a fabulous job with the the front line, the, the, the folks that are providing care on a daily basis, the ones that know our residents best, they can see a change in somebody in one shift. And as soon as they see that, that as soon as they see those changes, the first thing that they do is is go to the nurse in charge and we get our speech therapist down here immediately to really come and take a look. And and for each individual, it's very different, whatever their need is. You know, she you know, I say that we have about 10 different types of utensils for each, you know, that, that we can drop back and punt to, you know, but she has. So many, I would say at least 10, at least 10. She does a really great job. The whole team does as well. And it's working together, knowing your resident, knowing the individual and, um, you know, kind of make sure we make those adjustments before it becomes a problem with weight loss. Right, right. Now, in order to do that, in order to have a staff that is able to, you know, a frontline staff that's able to sit at the table with a resident and watch them interact in a obviously a friendly hospitable manner but also evaluate them and see changes in their habits and their personality like you said pocketing etc presbyterian senior care network 
uses the CARES Dementia Basics online training program. What can you tell us about that program? What does it do for your staff? What does it do for your operations? Why did you choose it? As I learned, there are a number of different ways to train staff. This is yours. Tell listeners why it's important to what you do. Well, we do a we do a lot of educational opportunities. We have our own Woodside workshop that is with us. If you're working in one of our Woodside neighborhoods, which is our dementia specific neighborhoods and communities, that's a full day training. We bring in speakers such as Tipa Snow, Dr. Cameron Camp. We do a lot of education, but initially for every single team member that comes to Presbyterian Senior Care Network from Erie, Pennsylvania to Washington, Pennsylvania, they go through what we call the CARES Dementia Basic Online Training Program. And it doesn't matter what role they're hired for, but they participate in the CARES training. You become certified through the Alzheimer's Association. There's a 30-question quiz after that. And, you know, when we were researching the training specific to dementia care, we chose CARES because of the partnership with the Alzheimer's Association. And also the information was pretty good. It was presented in a way that was easy to understand. And they have a lot of uh, TIPA Snow videos that are embedded in the voiceover PowerPoints. And Presbyterian Senior Care Network has invited TIPA to our communities multiple times in the past several years. So our team members, they relate to her and her approach to care. We feel Honestly, it's really important for the team to have a good understanding of dementia before they hit the ground running and even start caring for our residents. You know, every single team member is going to cross paths with somebody living with dementia at some point, and we want them to feel prepared no matter what role they play, what department they're in. You know, 80% of the population in long-term care at this point has some dementia diagnosis, so we want them to feel prepared. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's so important. And uh, it's great to hear. We could continue this conversation for another 30 minutes, probably for another 30 days. But I want to I wanna bring home some points. Obviously, in senior housing, we're always thinking about outcomes. I do X and it has this result for my resident, it has this benefit for my resident. What are the most important outcomes that you've seen institutionally or you personally or both in terms of your approach to memory care dining and what are the outcomes that operators should be looking for? If you could give them three, the most important, all right, watch for this, this, and this. And if you see these these metrics or these trends, if you see these outcomes, you're, you're on the right track. Well, what would be the top? Well, a lot of folks say that if folks are living with dementia, they're automatically going to lose weight because they're not going to want to eat. If you do some of the things that we talked about, you know, ask their opinion, learn their recipes, offer them the choice, encourage them to participate. Think about that. You know, we want to make sure that we we want to make sure that they're eating, they're engaged in the process, they're not losing weight. You know, get creative. If they're if they're not going to be able to sit and dine with the group, make accommodations for that. Those are the things that I would definitely look for. Fabulous. And the name of our report is The Race for Evidence in Memory Care Dining. Certainly, that is going to become more and more important as an evidence-driven, data-driven consumer base. My generation, for example, begins making more and more decisions for our parents. I mean, collectively, not my parents, they're doing great, but collectively, 
what are the most important studies that Presbyterian Senior Care Network follows for its memory care dining? Well, a lot of things that we look at, you know, one of the things that, that we've been known to look at are, are there's been a lot of talk about the place settings. And while everybody will tell you that a royal blue or sunshine yellow or cherry red plate is the way to go, especially the, the newest thing is the lime green. We have those colors. We do have those colors. And our dining team is still adamant in, in using some of these colors. But it's not about if you use a red plate, you know, people will eat better, even though that they do have, you know, years ago, probably over a decade ago, they did do one of a report, a research project with the red plates. And, you know, there were a group of men and they, they ate better off of the red plates and they drank better out of a red cup. But in my opinion, it's more about the contrast of the the color of the food on the color of the plate. So, you know, if you're having chicken and mashed potatoes and I don't know, cauliflower, you're not going to want to put that on a white plate, but you're going to want to use a red or a blue plate. But if you're having a wonderful fruit salad that's bright and colorful, a, a white plate might be okay. So it's, it's taking these research these research articles that, that you read and, and really bringing them back to the individuals that you know and see where where that's going to fit in. You know, there's a lot of folks talking about the eat well dinnerware for dementia as well. You know, we have been following that and seeing, you know, some of the things that work with the eat well dinnerware with dementia. So it's some things that our that our dining team, our network integration team is working on for us and seeing what best fits with the residents that we serve. That's fabulous. So last thing, we've, we've discussed a lot. What would you want listeners to walk away with? The, the old, if you've learned nothing else, make sure you blank. What's most important for listeners to hear and to receive? Make sure you ask their opinion, learn their recipes, show the plates, encourage them to participate. And one of the things I like to remind our team is how important mealtime is within our own family. So let's make sure that our Woodside families have the same engaging experience. That's fabulous. Carrie, thank you so much. Carrie Chisano is our guest from Presbyterian Senior Care Network. Thank you so much for sharing this with us today. Jack, thanks for inviting me. Have a great day. You as well. And that does it for this episode of Transform. I'd like to give another shout out to our sponsor, Point Click Care. Until next time, I'm Tim Mullaney with Senior Housing News. Thanks for listening.